Last time on the Twilight Zone podcast, we celebrated Rod Serling's contribution to the universe of Planet of the Apes. The reaction to that episode has been so huge that I thought I would address it in this little epilogue episode. So if you're one of the people who has emailed me, tweeted me, Facebooked me with comments about that show, then thank you so much. You know, it means a lot that this has really gone down as something quite special. There are too many comments to read. We'd be here for, for a couple of hours at least, but I did want to maybe read a selection of them. So if you've sent me an email or a comment and I don't read it, please know that I do appreciate it, but there were so many that I couldn't fit them all in to one episode. So I've chosen a few that raise maybe a couple of discussion points about the Rod Sailing script and the episode itself that I think maybe we can build something on. And what that will do for us is kind of put a cap on this subject for now and then we can delve back into the Twilight Zone in the next episode. And what I will also do is I'll put the full interview with Amy Boyle Johnston at the end of this episode too. So why don't we get started with some listener emails about Rod Serling's Planet of the Apes. I've had an email from a good friend of the show, Sasha, and she said, I just wanted to say a quick congratulations on this stellar piece of audio you've created in your latest episode regarding the Planet of the Apes. What you've produced is an artful, informative and fascinating deep dive that listens like any well-produced documentary on screen today. The sound devices you employed, such as the running of the film strip, to denote that we're back in Rod Serling's movie, did exactly that. I saw it playing in my mind, the way he would have wanted it produced, and perhaps almost more complete than a film with its production constraints could ever have produced. I was never a devoted fan of the movie, but I feel like if Sailing's version had ever come to fruition, it undoubtedly would have held a special place in my heart, right there along with The Twilight Zone. So thank you for this perfect midnight radio rendition of Sailing's vision. I always eagerly await your episodes and this did not disappoint. Kindest regards, Sasha. Well, thank you, Sasha. You were one of the first people to email me almost immediately uh, after putting it out. So thank you so much for that. You pointed out something there, the use of audio devices to kind of denote things like we were back in Rod Sailing's movie. And I'm really glad you picked up on that because when I was putting this episode together, I knew that there were certain things I wanted to do. I wanted to have creations of parts of the script to maybe just give us a flavour of, of what it could have been like. I also wanted to have the interview with Amy. I also wanted to relay the history of the production. And then there was also the, the sort of memos and things. So, But thankfully things did come together, but I ended up with this massive piece and... 
It was almost in danger of collapsing under its own weight with the sheer volume of different stuff that was in it. That's when this kind of idea of being in this movie studio in the Twilight Zone came along. A studio where all of the never made things become made. And I found then that mentally kind of being in that space where we were looking at documents together, I was on the phone with Amy, I was running this film, it kind of then started to lend itself to a natural separation of these things so we could go from one to the other and just using these little cues so the audience would know exactly where they are. If they heard the beeps, then they knew I was on the phone with Amy. If they heard the film running, then they knew that we were back in the movie and it kind of naturally developed from that. So I'm really pleased with the way it worked out in the end and I'm really glad that you've noticed that too. And you're also one of several people who wrote to me and said, actually, I'm not really that big a fan of Planet of the Apes, but I still really enjoyed the episode because of finding out about that sailing connection and uh, enjoying it on that level. So thanks for that too, Sasha, and thanks for writing in. Good friend of the show, Andrew, has also written in, and you will remember Andrew from his reading of And the Valley Was Still. And he said, Dear Tom, I just finished listening to your podcast on the genesis of the original Planet of the Apes film. And I want to thank you for providing answers to a number of questions that I've had since I first noticed Rod Serling was credited as co-author of the screenplay. I first encountered the story of the 1968 film when I was in grade school back in the 70s. One of my best friends had a book and record treatment produced by Marvel Comics and I love to listen to it. I've actually got that, um, that book and record myself. And he goes on, the Taylor character in that version was neither as cynical nor as aggressive as the one Charlton Heston portrayed on screen, and Taylor's reaction to the Statue of Liberty left out the swearing. But other than that, it was a fairly faithful adaptation of the movie. I didn't watch the film itself though until after I'd already seen several dozen episodes of the Twilight Zone. Apart from Taylor's opening lines, I didn't notice any speeches or dialogue that fit with what I knew as sailing style. Thanks to you and Amy Ball Johnston, I understand why. I think it's unfortunate that none of sailing's dialogue made it into the final screenplay. Amy's comments aside, Sailing was more than capable of writing a full-length film when he put his heart into it, even if he was more comfortable with the half-hour format of a television show. Amy herself cited Seven Days in May, which remains one of my all-time favourite films. He keeps the Sailing-esque exchanges in that film to a minimum, but when he includes them, they work perfectly. You mentioned I shot an arrow into the air, as a sort of prototype for sailing screenplay, Planet of the Apes, without the apes. I'm surprised you didn't also mention people are alike all over. To my mind, this episode is just as important to model, particularly in the way it deals with the theme of the eternal foreigner. Someone being apparently accepted, but only as an object of scrutiny, curiosity, or amusement, never as an equal. And of course, the latter episode contains the masterful performance by Roddy McDowell, eight years before donning his chimpanzee makeup for the first time. Keep up the good work, Andrew. 
Now you make a good point there about people are alike all over and I think it was one of those things, maybe not that episode specifically, but Twilight Zone episodes as a whole that I kind of had to make that decision early on to maybe put that to one side in case it just became such a massive thing to include them, the kind of references and influences because there are several of them. I mean, in those opening lines where the character of Thomas says with three Rip Van Winkles after coming out of these uh, stasis chambers that are straight out of the Rip Van Winkle caper, you know, that was an easy one that I could have potted quite, quite early. But there's also things like the shelter. Um, I think it was Joseph Bernard's character who is, for all intents and purposes, an American citizen. He dresses the same as everyone else. He has a job the same as everyone else. He lives in the same neighborhood as everyone else. But the moment that things start to turn bad, his ethnicity then comes into it. And we do see that he is the eternal foreigner, the perpetual foreigner, and that acceptance of him only goes skin deep. So there are quite a few episodes, but you know, well spotted on that one. That's a good one as well. The people are alike all over, but I think I had to make the decision as to what to leave out as well as what to include. And I think that might be a good exercise down the line, actually, in a podcast of its own to kind of uh, go into those. Maybe not in the Twilight Zone podcast, but maybe in the, in the podcast that I will do in the future. So thanks for writing in, Andrew. I appreciate it. Okay, good friend of the show, Al writes in and he says, Hi Tom, congratulations on your Sailing Planet of the Apes podcast. I learned a lot and I enjoyed every minute of it, especially your chat with Amy. If I'm reading this correctly, Amy is not at all fond of the Planet of the Apes film that came out, mainly because it disrupts the message Rod Sailing was trying to convey. Her and your example of Thomas comments to the cab driver, juxtaposed with you damn dirty ape, is clear, and I can sympathise with her disappointment in the way Rod was erased from the script. What I found so interesting about your conversation is that you sympathise with it too, but at the same time, you're a damn big enthusiastic apes fan. Let's face it, much as we love Rod and his work, take your stinking paws off me you damn dirty ape, is one of the coolest moments in movies, and so is the you maniacs ending. So listening to you agreeing with Amy, but still loving the film, was an entertaining give and take. Well thank you Al, I'll just pause there for a moment to maybe address that. You're right, in the last conversation we had with Amy on the show, she did say that she herself isn't a huge Planet of the Apes fan of the film that came out. But I, like you say, am, you know, I, I do love the film and what came after it as well. What I tried to do with the episode was not necessarily say what Sailing was planning was better, but more to say that what Sailing was planning certainly had merit and is still an important part of what came out, even though it was changed significantly before it actually reached the screen. I think sometimes when a thing becomes lost or something comes out that is different from what was originally intended, sometimes the thing that was lost or altered then takes on a kind of mystique that I think people gravitate to. I'll give you an example. A few years ago now, they made a prequel to The Exorcist, and 
The original director was Paul Schrader. Now, what happened was the studio didn't like it, so they hired Rennie Harlan to come in and redo it. I'm not sure exactly what the percentage is, but a huge amount of it was reshot. It, it is a different film. I think it shares maybe a few scenes that are the same. So it was the Rennie Harlan reshot version that actually came out. Now, I don't think it was particularly well received, but what did happen was because people knew about the Paul Schrader edition, it kind of took on this mystique as this lost classic. I was very active in the horror community then and people were heralding this thing as the version that should have came out. It, and they were basing this on things that Paul Schrader had said in interviews. So they were heralding it as this, this great lost classic. And it, it was a case of you don't really know. You know, nothing had came out to say that it was a, a classic. And when it was actually released, because they actually released it later down the line on DVD, and it's a very different movie. I think it is a better movie, but not by much. I don't think either version is particularly great. So, so when it did finally come out, and all of that mystique was gone, this, this great lost film, all of that evaporated the moment it came out, because, you know, people saw it, and yeah, it was okay, you know. So... I think sometimes the, the lost things do take on that mystique. So I, I didn't want to kind of build Sailing's version up as this would have been a better Planet of the Apes movie, but maybe examine what did seem to be great about it and just put it up there for people to maybe get a flavour of it and make up their own minds about it. And the good thing is that those people who aren't particularly Planet of the Apes fans now after listening to that show, have come to me and said, you know what, I wish that was the movie we've got. But I think they've discovered that on their own now, through the podcast, and not me saying, look at how amazing this, this could have been, it's better than what came out. It was more a case of putting it out there and, you know, letting people make up their own minds and also highlighting how important it was in the whole process. Okay, so I've hijacked your email there, I will carry on now. Okay, Al goes on to say, I have never read Rod's screenplay and I found it all fascinating. The concept of the Thomas robot may be hokey, but I didn't see the switch coming at the intended execution and it made me laugh. I'd love to see this movie, but I'll settle for the comic series. I didn't quite get how the Statue of Liberty was going to be worked into this though. Maybe I wasn't listening carefully at that point, but it seemed that the idea was to get a glimpse of the statue amongst the skyline of the city? If so, then how would the apes ever think that humans were always savage animals? Or is the implication that they all know about the past? A great job all the way round by you, the voice actors by Amy. Two and a half hours flew by like a dream. Best, Al. Okay, thank you, Al. I'll just answer your Statue of Liberty question. I kind of broke my own rule a little bit with the Statue of Liberty stuff because it was so fascinating, but I wanted this to be just about that original script. And in that original script, that first draft, there was no sign of the Statue of Liberty. It wasn't included in any way, shape or form. So my including it was a bit of a cheat because it didn't appear until the next kind of major rewrite draft 
where it then became a fixture from then on. So it is interesting in that next draft, it's kind of used a bit differently and it doesn't play out exactly how it does in the finished film, but it is there at the conclusion. So just to clear up for, for you, Al, and anyone else who might have got a bit confused by that, this first draft, no Statue of Liberty at all, and the reveal was through that piece of film where they find an old film canister, and on it they see the nuclear explosion. And it also mentions that it was made in America, so then Thomas knows that they are on Earth. Okay, so thanks for writing in, Al. Okay, good friend of the show Rob writes in and he says, Tom, hope this email finds you well. I just finished listening to the Planet of the Apes episode, the one where you discuss Rod Sailing's first draft. The episode was riveting, interesting and fascinating. Thank you, Rob. While I've certainly seen the movie several times and appreciate its uniqueness and popularity, I was never a huge fan of the movie. It was fine and it was fun, but it was not really a favourite for me. However, your podcast episode made it seem more important and interesting than I remember it being. In particular, the production values were so high, and I was very impressed. The sound effects that served as transitions between interviews and screenplay readings were helpful and set the mood effectively. The voice acting by you and your friends helped me visualise a draft that never made it to the screen. There was a scene between Dr. Zayas and Thomas both performed admirably by you, where their voices jumped from one stereo channel to the other. It was subtle, but I caught it, and it pulled me right into the scene. I actually found myself saying, wow, nice job, Tom, and I couldn't wait to hear more. I plan to follow whatever podcast you choose to continue this tale. Have a great summer and hope to hear from you again soon. And that was from Rob. Well, thank you very much, Rob. That's very kind of you to say. You know, I had to... I think with this one, because I wanted to include the clips of that never-made movie, I kind of wanted to up my game a bit with the audio side of things, so it was a lot of experimentation there, things I've never really done before, and if anyone out there is one of those people who listens to podcasts with one earbud in while they're doing something else, I apologise, because this one I did design as a bit more of a stereo experience, especially when it was me doing the voices of more than one character which I never really wanted to do it was okay for the smaller parts but with people like Dr. Zaius or Cornelius I did want to get other people to do those voices but like I said when I announced this episode life just got really busy I had to make the decision that right okay I'm gonna have to work with what I've got now otherwise this thing will never get finished which is a shame because I would love to have had other voices in there doing things like the voice of Dr. Zayas and that kind of thing. So before we move on, I just want to again say thank you to the people who got involved. Um, Fred from the Twilight Pwn, who was the, the ape doctor who, you know, said to me when I asked him to do it, you know, I'm not an actor, so don't expect amazing things. But I think he, he pulled it off perfectly. And I said to him on Twitter, you know, it's a good job I won a rondo myself because I'm never going to win any Oscars for my acting, but he done a great job with his piece, so that was great. Uh, Craig Beam, who did the voice of Arthur P. Jacobs, again, initially I just sent him one or two little things to read, which he very graciously did quite quickly, but then as I was writing the project and it became 
uh, bigger and bigger and there was more and more stuff for Arthur P. Jacobs to do, then his brief cameo became a starring role and he very graciously put the time in to read all of this stuff that you see in the in the finished episode and things like that take time but he did it and I, and I really appreciate him doing that. Now then we have Brandy Jacola as Zira and that was one voice that just had to be right I think because Zira is like the heart of the piece and I don't think it would have worked if it was me putting on a female voice you know that's okay if I'm maybe doing a reading of a story but I think in this it just wouldn't have been right and it needed a good person, a person who could actually act to do that part and thankfully Brandy was that person and I said to her afterwards, you know, I, I think she was the heart of the whole thing. If Zero wasn't right, then those sort of dramatizations, those sections would just not have worked. So I think all credit to Brandy for that. And then finally, there's Jeff Holland, who did the voice of Michael Wilson. Now, again, that was only quite short, only two memos. But in a sense, that was kind of the end of Sailing's involvement. So I wanted someone with a very distinctive, a very good voice. Again, someone who had a bit of acting experience, maybe. And Jeff is an actor. He's a very good actor. Most of the stuff he puts out on the internet is of a more comic variety and that's how I first got to know him so it was really great to hear him do this very serious reading as Michael Wilson and I love the quality that he has in his voice so that was that was great too okay so that was a very long response to your email but thank you Rob okay and finally good friend of the show and he's been on the show in various ways himself in the past NASA sent me an email and he said hey Tom just wanted to say that you put on an amazing show behind the Planet of the Apes piece that you did I remember when I first started contacting you you were asking me feedback on your sound quality etc to see how far you've come with creating podcasts is amazing really proud of you and proud to have been listening this long the effects you did for the voiceovers on the voices and the sound effects really make this episode shine that along with the extensive research. You even did what the original Planets of the Apes did. You left the door open for follow-ups on the subject by not getting too far past the writing and planning stages. Well, thank you, NASA. You know, NASA, as you will probably remember, is a producer and recording artist, so this is his domain, you know, so to, to hear that from you, NASA, I really appreciate that. And you're right, you know, I have left the door open and I will go back through that door uh, at some point, whether it be on this show or something else. Now NASA goes into something really interesting here, so let's get into that. He says, one of the more fascinating parts of the show was the debate over whose idea it was for the Statue of Liberty to appear at the end and the multiple stories and misrememberings of the events. I can give my two cents here. I recently became aware that the original intent behind the Statue of Liberty was that it was to celebrate the abolition of slavery in 1865 at the end of the American Civil War and that the original idea of the statue came from Edouard René de la Boule, I've probably pronounced that wrong, thanks NASA, a known French abolitionist and supporter of Abraham Lincoln. In America, 
We are told that the statue represents freedom and liberty and was simply a gift from the French celebrating our country's histories. In schools, it's never taught that this ties into the end of slavery as well. Unseen by most tourists and only visible from the air are broken chains and shackles on one of the feet of the lady, representing the freedom from slavery by African Americans. The original presentation in the US apparently also featured broken chains in her hands that were later replaced by the tablet. I should warn that there is a widely debunked and false story on the internet about the original statue being based on a black woman and that the statue exists in France. Part of me almost feels like in this age of double talk and falsified news that a story like that gets made up to cast a shadow on the history that's been kept from us that simply seems undeniable. Over time the statue's origin and intention changed as it didn't actually get built until 1886, which was now at the height of the Reconstruction era in the US. Many of the notes about the Civil War were now buried as to not offend the South. There is even a widely known piece written by W.E.B. Dubois decrying the statue as a bit of an insult to African Americans based on the lack of true freedom they were given during what grew into the Jim Crow era. I say all that to say this. I'd be surprised if this was not partially in Rod Serling's head as he wrote the ending of Planet of the Apes. Being an outspoken person on civil rights, I'd find it a heavy coincidence that the Statue of Liberty was chosen by Rod given the comparative stories. Planet of the Apes features authority figures that erase the true history of oppressed peoples. This aligns perfectly with the Statue of Liberty's true purpose being whitewashed over time into a freedom statue in the most generic of words. It's kind of incredible that he got that shot written into the film, but the history of the statue is so hidden in American culture that it's possible it went over many of the people's heads involved in the film as well. I did some quick research on Arthur P. Jacobs and Blake Edwards, as well as set designer artist Don Peters, and forgive me if I'm wrong, I just don't see any of those other men drawing the correlation based on the history of the statue and the plot of the film the way Sailing was in a position to. Here's my theory, which is based on zero fact of what happened. Either Jacobs and or Edwards may have raised the point to Sailing and or Peters that the ending should include a landmark destroyed in order to show that they were on Earth the entire time. From there, my guess is Sailing's mind went straight to the Statue of Liberty for its symbolism and Peters may have drawn up a few options including the statue. Thus, in some ways, it was everyone's idea. But alas, that's just a theory I made up to make excuses for multiple people making claim to something that seems to be strongly Sailing's. Rod Sailing has a history of sliding social justice-based messaging into his work after learning the hard way not to be that direct with it in his teleplay days. And I see the insertion of the Statue of Liberty at the end of the Planet of the Apes film as no different. NASA. Thank you NASA, that's some fascinating stuff there and I was really engrossed when I first got that email and fascinated by that history of the Statue of Liberty. And it's not something that I'd ever heard so it really is great to hear that and have it tied into this story 
and your assessment of how things went, how it actually came into it, seems a pretty fair enough explanation, so you may be onto something there. So thank you, NASA, for writing in. Which leads me on to Amy Ball Johnston, who is a board member of the Rod Sailing Memorial Foundation. I want to thank them for actually putting a link to the Planet of the Apes podcast on their website and on their Facebook page. So I really appreciate that, you know, getting recognized by the Rod Sailing Memorial Foundation for a piece of work you've done. I don't think it can get much better than that. But um, I think I really owe a debt of gratitude to Amy because I might have put all this together, but without her input on it, I don't think it would have been anywhere near what it ended up being. You know, I could have put a, a bit of a history from the books together that I have, which was all included in the show. But Amy was kind enough to not only come on the episode and speak to me about it, but also to share with me some of her research, which became the basis of the memos between Arthur Jacobs and so on. And that just added a real depth to everything. You know, that added something that I could never have gotten myself. So it's through her generosity with her own research that I was able to to add that to the episode, which I really think put us inside the process rather than just commenting on the process. And that's all thanks to Amy, as well as, you know, just being fascinating to listen to. And everyone should check out her book that we spoke about when she was last on the show, and that's called Unknown Sailing. And you can find a link to that in the show notes for the Planet of the Apes episode. So what I'm going to do to finish up, to kind of put a bow on this topic for now, so we can delve back into the Twilight Zone, I'm going to play that interview with Amy in full. Now most of it ended up in the episode, but there are a few lines here and there that weren't included just for editing reasons and so on. So there's a little bit extra in this. Now, what I will say before I play it is that it's probably less of a conversational interview than I would normally do because it was very much designed to be like question, answer, question, answer. So I could pluck these things out and put them in the overall edit. So it's it's pretty much blocked that way, although there is a bit of back and forth. It's not as conversational as I would normally do. But Amy's fascinating anyway, so that's the main thing. So I do have a couple of interview type things in the works. One of them may come up next, but I am getting back to work on our Twilight Zone episodes proper. And after this interview, we'll hear from Rod Sailing to find out what episode that is. So here's that chat with Amy Boyle Johnston, and I'll speak to you next time. Amy, last time we spoke, um, in the feedback that I got from listeners, people seemed to really enjoy hearing about you digging around in the sailing archives. So in terms of what's there to do with Planet of the Apes, what, what kind of materials are we talking about? Planet of the Apes, there's not a lot in the Sterling Archive itself. There was some in Wisconsin. Um, the script in Ith- Ithaca Archive has more, but the Ithaca Archive is closed to the public. Right. But the place that I would recommend is the um, Franklin Shafter Archive. The Franklin Shafter Archive is at the William and Marshall, Franklin and Marshall College. Uh-huh. Outside of Lancaster, Pennsylvania, Franklin Marshall College. And then the Alfred P. Jacobs Estate is... Their records are in a college in outside of Los Angeles. 
but not a lot on Sterling. And that's probably because after Sterling wrote his required scripts, he was done with it. Uh-huh. Um, what I found of Sterling was the 1968 letters he wrote when they approached him about writing a sequel. With Pierre Boulle's novel itself, what do you think made Sailing a good fit for that material? I think the idea of morality was across. Pierre Boulle also did um, The Bridge Over the River Kwai. Yeah. I've been told Sterling was a huge fan of. And in fact, one of his cars had the theme song. I've been told the horn was the theme song of The Bridge Over the River Kwai. Okay. Um, I don't know if that's false or fi- um, fiction, but I've been told that by enough people that it makes me you wonder. It's a, it's a tale of morality. And what Sterling originally approached it as was a tale of morality. Hmm. Um, he was winding up The Twilight Zone. He wanted to do a film. And I think this gave him enough of an edge where he could do it. Um, he was not originally the original writer proposed, though. They originally wanted Patty Chayefsky to be the writer. In my research, I came across this Marvel Comics interview with Sailing from 1975. And he says that he first became involved with Planet of the Apes when the King brothers had the property um, and they approached him to do it. Now, this is literally the only mention that I can find about this King brothers thing with Planet of the Apes. Have you come across anything in your research that that sheds a bit more light on that? I do know. All, all I know is that the King Brothers did approach him. Originally, it was through the King Brothers, which does not make any sense to me because the Alfred P. Jacobs documents I have, they were trying to sell the film before the book even came out. They were going to producers um, with proposals for the film. Huh. Um, so huh. I don't know the story about the King brothers, how they were involved and how they exited the business. Um, I don't know that story, but I do know Jacobs was the first person to deal with the rights to the book. You, you showed me a document, uh, the, the kind of first pitch from Arthur Jacobs and Jay Lee Thompson. And yes. The way they talk about it, it's this real rip roaring adventure type film, you know, and they even go so far as to say the object of doing this is to entertain and thrill nothing more um which kind of seems to clash with sailing a bit and they they really play down the social aspect to it now do you kind of feel that from the get-go what arthur jacobs wanted and what he was likely to get from sailing were, were two different things well i look at who they proposed as the writers who they proposed as the director who they proposed as the actors and I, and I wonder if they were selling, this is going to be an action, summer adventure, you know, rip-roaring hit for the money. But then they wanted Paul Newman in the lead, and they wanted Blank oh. Edwards to direct. So you have to look at that and wonder, were they selling this for the, for the dollars and then really writing a different film? And when you look at the test sequences that were written, yeah. I don't know any producers that would have read that and thought it was anything other than a thoughtful film. Uh-huh. Uh, there were no Serling is not an action writer he's known for his dialogue not exactly for um his fight scenes now I, i've read some very critical opinions of rod sailing's first script the one we're kind of talking about tonight and i want to address some of those with you in this conversation but i think what a lot of these people forget who criticize it is that it is just a first draft yes. so do, you know, do you think that Sailing wrote this with the expectation that he would end up changing it quite significantly? I believe he did. He also, 
he was coming at the end. I mean, he signed the contract in 1964, I want to say. So it was at the end of the Twilight Zone. Um, he had he, by then the fight with CBS was fully um, engaged with each other to the point of isolationism. And I think he thought he could get away with a lot of stuff. But I also thought he would be reined in. I don't know any person who's ever had a uh, script who did not think there would be corrections, uh. especially at first. I truly believe he thought that this would be uh, a draft that would be added on. That was part of his contract, uh-huh. that would be constant revisions. And I assume that he thought on the set there would be revisions as well. In terms of those revisions, you know, the, I've seen... I've seen it written that he wrote up to 30 rewrites. I've seen it written that it's only two or three. Can can you shed any light on that? He wrote many revisions of it, but not, a, I would say there's three of substance that were changes. Mm-hmm. The rest of it would say, can you alter this? Can you change this? Can you insert this? And he would create a whole new draft. Um, I've read three different stories altogether. Um, the first draft is wildly different than, I want to say, six months later when he rewrote it again. And the second and third draft resemble each other. But the first is something I've never seen before. Yeah. It's a unique piece of writing. So what, what do you think it is about that one that, that made, um, made Jacobs and Blake Edwards want him to change it so much? It's the million-dollar question. <laughs> um, um it would have been one. They've always argued that it would have been too expensive to film, hmm. which even today, someone said, well, under CGI, you could film it today. I still think it would be unbelievably expensive to basically it's modern day DC, Washington, DC, yeah. you know, people yeah. with apes. Uh-huh. Um, it's much easier to stick a bunch of people in horrible costumes and a lion and a man in a loincloth than it is to recreate Washington, DC. So I think the finest has scared them. I also think that if you read the first script and you notice the humanity in it, yeah. Sterling did a good job of writing a well, thoughtful, nuanced piece. And that doesn't always portray in summer blockbusters. They still expected this to be a summer, summer blockbuster. And Sterling didn't do that. Sterling delivered people interacting with each other and asking them to be thoughtful. I mean, my favorite line in the entire script, and I said this in our last interview, was when Serling said to the cab driver, hey, buddy, to you I look like the wrong end of a banana, but giving time and understanding, we'll see each other for who we are. So when you create that line to get your hands off me, you damn dirty ape, Mm -hmm. they're both memorable, but they both say two different stories. Well, they they are completely different. Uh, Well, I I guess the first half of of Serling's first draft kind of hangs together with the, the finished movie in terms of the beats of it. Um, but but that's a holdover from Pierre Boulle's novel as well. And I think yes. the three of them are, are quite comparable in, in that way. In Sailing Script, you know, when we first meet the apes, he writes it with these the apes dressed like British safari hunters. Um, yes. And he also has a scene where Nova talks later on. And I, I have a shelf full of books about Planets of the Apes here. And in one of them, one of the commentators who writes the book um, describes these things as quite silly. Uh, what would your thoughts on that be? It is silly. It's a it's a it's Planet of the Apes is a campy film. Hmm. Um, I also look at the time of when this came out. 
And a lot of the humor then was campy. Um, and it's a caricature. I mean, the caricature that Serling wrote, some of the scenes that didn't even make it are a caricature upon um, the society. And I argue that the finished film, which Wilson wrote, is a caricature on masculinity. So it is campy. It's not, this was not Seven Days in May. <laughs> okay. Now, one of the interesting things, again, that I, I knew nothing about until, you know, you made me aware of it, is that during the writing process, at one stage, Blake Edwards and Arthur Jacobs asked Rod Serling to include a rape scene in the script. Yes. I, I can't really see what was in their minds when they wanted this to happen. I, I've read what Jacobs wrote about it, where he's kind of trying to show that, you know, uh, Thomas is still kind of an animal himself or, or whatever. What, what are your thoughts on this this proposed rape scene? I am pulling up that letter right now. Um, all right. What I think is ironic about the rape scene is that they wanted Serling to write where another ape attacks Nova. Mm. And Nova watches the scene unfold to see who will win her favors. Yeah. And I find it ironic that someone wanted Rod Serling to write a scene where a man acts as his base nature, which is an animal at the end of the day, mm-hmm. in order to win the favor of someone, where um, that is the most anti-Serling thing I could imagine. To, to ask Serling to write a rape scene so that you are the victor, and then you get the spoils of, your, of the war, per se, um, I... I couldn't even imagine asking him that to his face. And and I couldn't imagine having your main character in a movie do that and then have the audience still be rooting for this guy throughout the rest of the picture either. Yes. I've read Sailing Script a few times now, and I, I actually, I've actually become quite fond of it. Um, and I really like his take. I, I think, and I mentioned this last time we spoke as well, um, the thing that, that I do find, find a little jarring is one of the weaker aspects of it, his method of um, where he uses a robot near the end. You know, yes. it just seems to come out of nowhere. What, what are your thoughts on that part of it? I think it's a cheap trick. Mm-hmm. I truly do. Serling, by his nature, by this point, I guess he wrote um, for Playhouse 90, but what Sterling is truly known for is the quick, tight, 24-minute dramas. Mm-hmm. He wrote for radio in college and then professionally, and then he went to TV. His most sex- successful writing is not an hour and a half long. Yeah. It's writes in segments. And if you look at the Planet of the Apes scripts he wrote, they almost read like segments that are tied together. He's uh-huh. not. It's not a very good, strong thread between them. Yeah. The robot... It, it's a cheap gimmick, and in the original book, it's like the doll, the doll that says data. Mm. It's just a, a gimmick. Um, it puts it in the future, and I don't think that would have survived. In fact, it's one of the, it's one of the things that in one of Arthur Jacobs' lists that you showed me, he's like, the robot goes, you know. he's he's. It doesn't sound like he's too keen on it either. When I read the communication between Jacobs, Sailing, and Blake Edwards, Maybe it's because I'm a Rod Sailing fan and Jacobs is very sort of, let's change this, let's change this. 
Do you get a sense that this was a volatile relationship or, or is this just a Hollywood relationship? You know, this is the way it goes. I, I believe that this was actually a, a quite friendly relationship. He got along well with Alfred P. Jacobs. They had worked together mm-hmm. in the past um, for TV. And when it comes to Blake Edwards, I don't know the relationship between him. When I spoke to Blake Edwards on the phone years ago, when I interviewed him about this subject, he recalled it fondly. He, he remembered um, Rod Serling fondly, uh-huh. but they were not buddies. But Serling wanted to do well. But in the film industry, I don't think Serling would have been treated. I don't think the writer was treated as well as Serling would have hoped. But they wanted a certain thing, and they wanted this to be a knockout film in the sense. And Serling, Serling wanted to write a thoughtful narrative. I, I guess we can't really talk Planet of the Apes without talking about the ending. And that's something that is so very different in this first draft. Um, it's done at a screening of some film that they recovered from a dig. Yes. What are your thoughts on how Sailing handles this part of um, Planet of the Apes? This, Especially in comparison to how the reveal is handled in the finished film. Can I step backwards? Sure. What I think is certainly wanted to improve on the original ending when, when Alfred Jacobs wanted to sell this film and he went to the productions, he tried to sell it that it would have this um, wow ending and they might even show the L.A. airport, the LAX airport, uh-huh. um, was his proposal for this knockout ending. Um, so they knew it was going to be Earth all along. The film I was actually quite impressed with because today – we have where you have a film within a film, it's almost over that genre. But by then that would have been quite revolutionary. Mm. Um, I don't remember any other films that were, that, that would have a film within a film. He did that in a Twilight Zone episode, 16 millimeter shrine Mm. where it was acknowledging the industry within it. I think that would have been quite interesting, but it instantly would have put it in the future. Right. So that was the problem. Um, I don't know. The first script has so many holes, and that's one of them. I By the end, I think Serling was tired, and he was looking for things to, to tie up the loose ends. So you just mentioned something there that I wasn't aware of, Jacobs and the, uh, the airport. So one of the things that I've been reading a lot about is you know, who got the idea for what? And there's so many different versions of, of who you know what came first so from what you've just said there it would because i know that rod sailing wanted to use the ending from the book didn't he originally yes so did he take direction from jacobs to uh that actually no he wanted it to be on air so that's why sailing wrote the first draft this way that you know of i don't know um i do know that um bull was really unhappy with the statue of liberty scene right in letters did i send you that letter uh, I, yeah, I think so. Uh-huh, yeah. Um, Bull was truly unhappy with it, and I actually thought that was a nice way that Sterling was acknowledging Bull by throwing in the Statue of Liberty, which, of course, was France's gift to America. Mm. Uh, I thought that was actually quite novel of him to do that, and it made it distinctly American at the same time. So so liberty itself, that, I think that's the main thing where everyone seems to want to lay claim to responsibility for it. And everyone thinks it was their idea. What, what do you think of that? Well, it's in Sterling's script, period. Mm-hmm. Um, so no writer after Sterling can lay claim to that. 
in one of the letters, Serling said, uh, Jacob says, Serling's good with the rosebud. They refer to it as the rosebud after it's written. Yeah. It's in Serling's scripts. I give Serling full credit for it. Um, I think it's odd that people fight over who came up with the idea for the Statue of Liberty in the Sand. Yeah. Um, be- because it's in his words. Uh-huh. Um, and then Wilson, in fact, was against it. Wilson wanted to change it. Um, because in, in in the final script that Wilson was given to revise, and then, of course, he rewrote it completely, um, Thomas dies at the end. Mm. And Wilson said, you can't have Thomas die at the end. That's too much tragedy. So with the actual finished film itself, how much do you attribute of it to Rod Serling? I attribute very little to Rod Serling. Rod Serling... Rod Serling finished it was a contractual obligation that he met every point of the of the contract that he signed in 1964 yeah and it says in the contract if he receives sole writing credit he will receive an additional $25,000 for this mm-hmm. um Serling was um he fulfilled it he was also the known writer of the time Wilson who had been blacklisted um, and should have received an Academy Award earlier for his writing, um, was a respected screenwriter, but at the same time, it was just coming out of that era of ghostwriting. Right. But so Serling's had some cachet to it. I mean, this is, when it came out in 1968, Twilight Zone is is in reruns, um, in syndication. Everyone knows that he's the guy with cigarettes. They forgot about Playhouse 90, but they know Twilight Zone. Mm-hmm. And they know this is a guy that's going to scare you, even though he didn't write scary Twilight Zones. He's the man that when you hear that music and you see his face in that cigarette, you know you're going to be entertained. He was part of the shine of the movie. Right. And I don't see a lot of Serling philosophy in the finished Planet of the Apes. And when I ask people who know Planet of the Apes, I go, show me one line of dialogue or one point of philosophy of Rod Serling in the script, and they can't. They'll say, well, he changed the story. The scene of the surgery, perhaps one person said the, the scar on the face. That's not a lot. This is, I don't see this, this bravado of, and excuse me, I'm not against men, but this bravado of forcing yourself and overtaking and escaping as Serling at all. Serling believed in understanding the human conditioning and understanding the other, and at least attempting to, and standing in your own truth. Um, So I don't see that in any of the finished film. It it ended up being bravado. And I look at all of Serling's writings, and I don't see bravado once. I mean, his most famous TV play, which is Requiem for a Heavyweight, is about a man that could have been, could have been the greatest fighter. Uh-huh. And then what happens is he finds an idea of self-worth. So I don't see Planet of the Apes as Serling at all. And, anyone, and, and I would say anyone who does say Serling wrote Planet of the Apes, say, show me where his, his philosophy is or where his dialogue is found in the script. And if they can't, you have to say, then what are we, what are we judging this by? He was part of the process, though. Yeah, I, I think for me, when when you look at it, and especially when you look at the subsequent subsequent drafts, it's um, 
I think he he kind of he's the one who cracks the code. He he solves some problems. He he gets things moving. He he starts to put shape to it, doesn't he? And I think by his third draft, which is a bit more recognizable with the finished film, you you kind of get maybe the best of both worlds in a way. It it, it does move a bit more. Um, you have things like the Statue of Liberty in it and so on, but he's still he's still got something to say. And it seems that Michael Wilson then came in and and just took the beats, but forgot to put the message in there. Yes, and I have um, I can read it. It's a letter Michael Wilson wrote to Arthur Jacobs, uh, March fifteenth, nineteen sixty seven, and I'm quoting Wilson where he says, "Rod Serling's screenplay is a science fiction melodrama, mm. solemn and earnest in tone, and in his treatment of the material, Thomas's death does indeed, as you put it." give stature to the whole piece. But he says, my screenplay, on the other hand, while on a plain tale of suspense and terror, is basically a satire. My treatment of the material, I think you will agree, is often light and playful and outrageous. And so he's, he's, and he says, from his point of view, the, of Wilson's point of view, his film is humorous just like Animal Farm is a comedy. So even Wilson, at the very beginning before his film, is saying we have two different pieces here. We have two different ways to approach this. So as a, as a kind of summing up of Sailing's version, and, and you've acknowledged that, you know, it is a first draft, there's problems with it, but that's what first drafts are, you know, that it's putting things down on paper and, and figuring out how things are going to fit together, isn't it? You know, could you give us a, a summing up of what you think of, of that first draft, what what's good about it and that kind of thing? What I like about Serling's draft is that it's a hopeful piece of fiction. Mm-hmm. Serling's hope, and this is in 1964, Serling wrote a piece that was about race relations. Mm-hmm. Um, and Serling's hope was that it would promote a dialogue and instead, by the time the finished version comes along, and this is not an insult to the film, by the time the finished version comes along, you know, the two most memorable lines of the film are actually about domination and not about integration. Mm. And I think that's, that's the shift. And Serling really wanted this film to work. And now, Mr. Serling. Next week, through the good offices of Mr. Charles Beaumont, we take a walk in some dead man's shoes. It's the story of a hobo who takes some shoes off a recently deceased hoodlum and then discovers that if the shoe fits, you have to wear it. And in this case, you have to do as the shoes do. Go where they tell you to and then perform some services above and beyond the norm. I hope we see you next week for Dead Man's Shoes. serious injury by one-third. Does your family have the security of seat belts? <laughs>